Hey, this is Jake Eddy, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Alone, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back. As you might have guessed from that introduction, we have something a bit different this time. I've got an interview for you. Um, I've been chatting to Jake Eddy, who is guitarist for the Becky Buller Band. He's also got a great new record of fiddle tunes out. Um, which is just called Jack Eddy, and you can go and find that on Spotify, and I really recommend it, kind of listen to that. Um, we had a really cool conversation about all sorts of things, about how to practice, about some of the cool stuff about bluegrass, and how he grew up listening to it and playing it, uh, a bit about his 1951 D18, um, and just, yeah, just a really cool chat, a super nice guy, um, and really enjoyed it. And as an added bonus, Jake has recorded a Jamalong track for us, so we can all play along with him as well, which is going to be fun. I'm going to really look forward to playing along with that myself. Um, and you'll find that as a separate episode alongside this one. Um, yeah, that's it. I'm going to let the conversation start, and I hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Hey, so I've got a guest with me today on the podcast. We've got Jake B. Eddy, from, uh, originally from Parkersburg in West Virginia. Is that right, Jake? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised West Virginian. <laughs> Uh, and Jake is I mean, kind of a, mu- a bluegrass musician who plays all the instruments, but guitar is currently his main focus. He's uh, in the Becky Buller Band and also has a new album out, which we're going to talk about soon. But I think it'd be great just to get an intro to you, Jake, and a bit of a, a bit of your story, how you got into bluegrass, what your journey's been. Sure, man. Well, my my background is, <clears throat> you know, it's it's not not too atypical from what you see in a lot of people from where I'm from. You know, I, I've I have a pretty musical family. My mom's a songwriter, and she played banjo and guitar. And my grandpa was a guitar player, and he played banjo and played bass. And uh, all my aunts and uncles played things and and sang. And so, you know, being around music was not anything necessarily special or out of the ordinary. When I was a kid, just kind of, you know, part of daily life, kind of being from Appalachia and being you know, from a musical family. So so playing music was always happening at, like, you know, uh, get-togethers, cookouts, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all that kind of thing. Everybody's always have instruments and playing music, so it seemed kind of like the natural thing to do. Um, was bluegrass the music that you heard as a kid? Was that yeah. what, you were, what you were around? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so, you know, and that's kind of the only music that I heard coming up, like, when I was really young, you know, until I started getting into school and stuff like that, but um, so yeah, it just seemed like the thing to do. I played, everybody in my family, you know, kind of started playing bass a little bit when they were young, just cause it's kind of like, um, you know, you can, you can teach someone to play two notes back and forth, you know, like a kid can figure that out. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then all of us basically moved on from that, except my brother, who's now is, is a real bassist and not just like a two note, uh, you know, kind of guy. He's like, <laughs> he stuck with it, but you know, kind of starting with something simple like that or learning to learned a few chords on the guitar, a roll on the banjo or something from our grandpa or from our mom. And then, you know, but they weren't necessarily pushing music on us. They kind of just, you know, if we wanted to do it, we could. If not, that's fine, too. It wasn't like, you know, no pressure from them. But I think kind of having that environment and having them say, you know, you can do it if you want. You don't have to. I think that kind of made it easier to want to, you know. um, Yeah, sure. And were you, were you playing music largely with your family then, or were you heading out to sort of local bluegrass jams and playing with other people yeah, too? Yes, so it was mostly with my family, uh, but other people too. My my grandparents actually hosted like a bluegrass jam, like um, concert kind of thing once a month uh, at like oh, a local cool. venue since I was a kid. So it was like, 
you know, local bands could go and sign up and, and do a set on like, they would have a sound system there and serve like food and drinks and stuff like that. And then there'd be jamming and we would go to bluegrass festivals and stuff like that, obviously. So, um, yeah, it was, it was everywhere and it, you know, it just seemed normal to me. Like I know a lot of people that you hear will say they had some kind of aha moment, like, Oh, I heard Earl Scruggs on the radio and that's yeah, what, got, yeah. you know, and, and for me it was there before I even realized, it, you know, so. Yeah, and what what age are you now? You're early twenties, is that right? Yeah, I'll be twenty two next month. So, I'm... so was there a point that you um sort of started to gravitate gravitate a bit more towards the guitar, or do you still kind of cover all the, all the the instruments? No, so I, I mean, I don't. I can get myself in trouble with a bass or a mandolin, right? I mean, like I can play enough to to hide, but um, you know, really, I I always play banjo and guitar primarily. I played banjo a lot more when I was younger because my grandpa was kind of more of a guitar player. And then when he kind of got more into the banjo, we would kind of switch off back and forth. But, um, you know, meanwhile, when I was in school and stuff, I was kind of getting into jazz and getting into some of that. And that basically was all on guitar. So um, I think guitar has always been a primary focus of mine um, alongside, you know, a little more banjo when I was younger. But, um, yeah, you know, not... But yeah, probably guitar has been the main one for at least like you know I don't know ten years or something. You can definitely hear a bit of that jazz influence in a couple of tracks on your album. Thanks, man. Um, it's definitely there's definitely bits that sort of lean that way. Some phrases, a few little chord changes, and bits that you can hear that influence in there. Definitely. Thanks, man. And I try to like on the record, I try to kind of pick musicians that I knew could also go that route. You know, if if it if the wind blew that way on the session, you know, I wanted that to kind of be an option. Um, my brother's a great bassist in the bluegrass realm but as a jazz player too and Corey walker who played banjo on there's pretty into jazz so i mean we had some kind of some jazz minds that worked there for sure and you tend to find, I mean, you know my experience you tend to find that most of the bluegrass players have at least an interest in a bit of swing and the sort of you know grisman and tony rice influence stuff there's you know most bluegrass players seem to like a bit of swing as well definitely yeah and you know yeah, probably the reason for a lot of it is because of Tony and because of that, you know, dog music stuff or, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of the kind of popular music still of the time back then was jazz. So there's like, you know, you'll see some kind of crossover tunes or like, you know, there's kind of, there's some things that overlap there, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's cool to sort of, you know, there's so much similarity between bluegrass and jazz, but jazz has that slightly wider harmonic bass generally, doesn't it? Sure, and I think, and you know, bluegrass can go that way if you're careful, right? And not, um, you can probably definitely overdo it. But you know, I love playing with bluegrass with people who have a little jazz background too, because that way, you know, you can get a little glimpse of where it could go. But you know, a, a lot of good bluegrass to me too is also about, you know, knowing when to like hold back and and not you know maybe not go that way even if you were tempted to <laughs> yeah and that's one of the things i love i've been listening to the record quite a bit um that's over great. the past week and not only is it it's a pretty solid choice of fiddle tunes that everybody's going to know but they're not they're also not all played at breakneck speed there's some there's room for breath and phrasing and space in there and i love that because so often bluegrass is sort of a race to the end and who can play fastest and i love all that as well that's great but it's nice to hear stuff that's given room to breathe and swing a bit as well Sure, and you know, and, and I don't know if, if this was like a, a kind of an intentional choice of mine or just happened that way, but um, you know, the first thing was when we 
we're going to make this record. We decided we're not going to overdub anything. We're not going to edit anything. We're not going to, like, we're going to play it on the mics. And if there's mistakes, if there's whatever, we're just going to keep it, right? Like warts and all. So, yeah. Like, there's no, there's no overdubs on the record except for, there's like two bars on the end of a tune, a duet with Kenny Smith on there that we dubbed just because we thought it was a little, like, um, like a little bit of a cleaner ending. But so other than that, everything on there is totally live. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? If you you can leave the old mistake in there, but if it's the last couple of notes, it's <laughs> you want to finish things cleanly, don't you? <laughs> sure. And we, <laughs> we wanted it to be, like you said, like have some room to breathe and have room to really improvise and let some ideas develop and things. So, I mean, there's some quicker tunes on there, but not, um, you know, I don't know. I, I it, that that kind of cliche about bluegrass flat picking, where it has to be, a, you know, you know, like I don't. I don't think we need to hear any more versions of Blackberry Blossom at 300 beats per minute. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's tired. Which is good news for people like me who can't play it that fast anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely true. And you listen to you know a lot of players I like. Um, I like Brian Sutton, who's on the album, obviously. Sure. And Tony Tony Rice is is Tony Rice, and we all love Tony Rice. But um, like even listen to somebody like Sierra Hull play the guitar. When people really connect the notes and let things ring through, and it's like a, a lovely long lyrical line rather than just a staccato burst of stuff. There's always that always draws you in, doesn't it? I think so, and I think that's probably some some of that comes from that jazz influence. When you you know listen to good jazz players, they can take just a small melody or a small little you know motif or a little cell of something and expand on it and develop it into something beautiful. And that's like you know giving yourself time to do that. You can't do it if if you only have you know thirty two bars at at two fifty, right? That's quick, you know. So yeah, really yeah. let. You know, I want to be able to stretch out and kind of develop some ideas and, and just see what happens. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I like playing at those kind of mid-tempo. And, and and the thing is, too, about that really fast picking, like when you get on Instagram or you get on Facebook or something and you see players, you see me playing, you see you, Trey Hensley playing or, or whoever, we're, everybody, all of us are playing quick on the Internet, right? Everybody wants to play their best, fastest, shreddiest stuff yeah, on the Internet. Yeah. But half of that is almost like a marketing game. Maybe I'm telling every all the secrets here, but you know the people on. If you want to book, if you want to get more students, or you want to get a gig somewhere, you want to get a, You know that's the stuff that's going to get people's attention. But when you come to see me at a show, I'm playing fiddle tunes at 120. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. not we're not doing we're not going breakneck all night or anything. So that's kind of you know maybe a misconception born kind of by the internet, but it's the way it goes. I think it's it's really interesting about it's a really interesting point. I think when people come as a student to learn something, they're often drawn by the flashy stuff. But actually, what they need because you can't play fast unless you can play slow. So sure. what what they need versus what they want. I mean, I signed up for lessons with Brian Sutton on the Artist Works platform about a year ago, and I sort of thought, yeah, you know, he's going to teach me some really clever stuff, and this is going to be great. And the first thing he said when I submitted the video was like, your arm's in the wrong place. You're playing really nicely, but you're totally choking the sound from the top. And if you can just learn to shift where your arm sits on the guitar and think about tone and think about the quality of the sound you're producing, you're going to get results. And it totally sort of blew me away, really. Just spent a couple of weeks relearning my picking style and my whole guitar playing sounded better. So my slow playing sounded better and more clean. So when I play quicker, it sounds more together, you know. Absolutely, and man. I, and that's, I, I, got, I got what I wasn't looking for, but what I needed. <laughs> that's the thing. And, and I don't think that guitar students of mine have ever got exactly what they wanted in the beginning, but I think they do get what they need. Like, you know, oftentimes I'll get a student, and, and, and this is not necessarily a, a dig on any of my students, but um, 
there, there's sometimes there's a misconception between what a teacher can offer you. And so, you know, sometimes I'll get a student and the vibe is kind of like, okay, hey, Jake, I, I gave you the money. We, we got the lesson lined up. We're both here together now. You know, what's the big secret, you know? And I yeah, don't yeah. have any big secret, you know. All I have is like, I think what a good teacher can offer a student is, is just accountability kind of thing. You know, if, if I give you something to work on, something to fix, and in two weeks we meet back up again, that's not better. We both know that you didn't work on it, you know. Yeah. So it's one of those things, like, I, I feel like almost what I offer to my students is, like, just to kind of stay on them and make them do the work. You know, I think a lot of times a student kind of will know where they what they need to work on and, and um they just need someone to kind of enforce that. And that's kind of, you know, what a lot of my, at least my more advanced students, that's kind of where we're at kind of thing. So, Yeah, and I think it's really true. I think, I mean, that's a lesson in life, isn't it? Is there are really no quick wins. You're never going to jump up three steps in one go. It's all about yeah. putting in the work, finding the right processes and just keeping going. Yeah, and it's so like, it's so kind of cheesy to say, but I, I tell my students all the time, like if you really do show up and do it every day, and stay on your, you know, your plan and your practice regimen and everything, it will get better. You know, it's just the, it's, it's always more time than talent. You know, it's, if you put the hours in, it'll, it'll clean up. I mean, if I'm honest, one of the reasons I do the whole kind of jam along track podcasting in the first place is it makes me be able to play a tune well enough every week to record it for people to play along to. And it's, exactly. that's my accountability. You know, I, exactly. that's me every week going right by Tuesday, I've got to have a track ready. So I've got to put the work in. And that's the thing when you, and yeah, and, and thankfully like working with, you know, Becky and and doing, having recording work and everything, you know, that, that there's so many things that I have to do that are playing related. You know, if I, if I let my responsibilities down, like I could potentially not have a job. Right. So that's, that's a, that's a good enough motivator for me to practice. I mean, that's, yeah, that's when it gets real, isn't it? So how, how did that gig come about with Becky? So the, so the deal kind of was, um, we were in this, you know, hell year, 2020, got COVID, there's no gigs, there's no nothing. And in the middle of it, my grandfather passed away and he's who taught us all to play music and everything. So, you know, my family's kind of in this sad state, you know, for obviously. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so there's, there's no gigs, there's nothing going on and I don't have any other training really. I mean, you know, I can work in a bar or a restaurant or something or I could get a job doing, you know, whatever. But so the, my big idea that I hatched to stay afloat during COVID was I bought this really old pickup truck. It was like a farm truck. It was like this big green truck with a wooden bed. And we started selling produce out of it with like free delivery for COVID. So people who didn't want to get out of their house. And the big thing was pumpkins. We sold them for like Halloween. I, I struck a deal with this pumpkin farm and I grew some myself. And we got all these huge, like, carving pumpkins for Halloween. And we would bring it to people's houses in the masks and everything. And the kids would come out, take pictures with the truck, and pick out pumpkins to carve and stuff like that. So it was kind of a cute little thing. And we sold, so we just were selling produce, basically. We sold Christmas trees and wreaths during Christmas and stuff like that. So anyway, that was, like, my main thing because there's no gigs going on. And then when my family was on vacation after Christmas, we took this little trip out to a cabin in Colorado. And I saw the article about the... Becky's band members like quitting or, or you know whatever, and I kind of talked to them. And I was also in part time college at the time, but it was online. It was kind of you know that sucked. I was my folks around. I said, hey, like I'm going to quit school and go back on the road and try to get this gig. And so um, Becky called me and 
I sent an email and then she called me back and said I should come down and audition. And um, when I got back to town, I sold the truck to have money to go down to audition. And then I, <laughs> I went down and auditioned and, and waited a while. And then she called me back and, and that's it. Got the job. That's great. And that's sort of been your main main work, that and a bit of teaching since, has it? For sure, yeah. And, and I was kind of teaching all through that. But it's, you know, sometimes the teaching can get a bit... Um, you know, I, I burn out on it pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And so have you had a chance to record with Becky yet? Has it been mostly touring work so far? No, we haven't recorded yet. And I don't, I'm don't. i not sure when that'll happen. I'm sure it will. Um, but, yeah, just kind of touring it. And that's all that we've had time to do. I mean, we've, we've been kind of all over the place. And we're about to go again. Uh, we're going to Minnesota. And then after that, we're coming back and doing the Grand Ole Opry. Cool. And then we're going to Maine, and then we're going to North Carolina, and then after that, I think the rest of the year is pretty tame after IBMA. So. That's one of the hardest things being on the other side of the Atlantic is seeing all these tour dates and things I could go and see, and knowing that I'm not going to get to see them. <laughs> I know. What's it like there in 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 the UK where you're at? Is it is there any live music going on, or is it still pretty lean? Yeah, it's it's getting going again, and then and some of the sort of jam sessions in in pubs are starting to happen again. It's starting to pick up a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got tickets booked to see some stuff later in the year, and hopefully it's going to happen. So, yeah, it'd be good to chat about a little bit about um, sort of the bits and pieces people are really interested in. So, what you know, what instruments you play? What's your main guitar at the moment? Yeah, well, so my, my main guitar is is, um, is my only guitar. is a um, uh, It's a 1951 uh, D18. Cool. And um, that's basically the only one I. It's not really the only one I own, but it's the only one I play. Um, and is there a story behind how you got hold of that guitar? Yeah, so uh, a friend of mine is a guitar teacher up in, in Ohio in Cincinnati, and he had a student who was like an elderly man who was going to move into a nursing home, and he had my friend, which was his teacher, help him sell all of his guitars before he like moved out. And that was one of them. And that was like his main one, like his prized one, and... and uh, so my friend hit me up and said, "Hey, I, I knew you were kind of looking for one. Is this, you know, what do you think of this one?" And I went up and played it. And it's it's a great man. It's one of the best um, older Martins really that I've ever played, and <clears throat> I have a, a you know for some reason kind of a connection to it. It just felt good from the moment I picked it up. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? You know, the 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 year is a number. It's how it feels to you and how you respond to it. And you know, it's a relationship, isn't it, with an instrument? And sure. If you, and, if it feels right, it feels right. And and yeah, and the old Martins. I mean, they're all good. Any old Martin you get is going to be good. But there's some that are really special, and and this is one of them. And and like I I played it up against last week. One of my buddies has a '46 Herringbone, and and I thought that the, my D18 was stronger than it. Not not that it was bad, but. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I know how to play it and like, you know, I'm used to it and I know kind of what I can get out of it and what I can't, but, <laughs> yeah. um, it's special. I, I like it. And, and people think I'm sometimes kind of stupid for flying with it and taking it everywhere, but I don't see the point of owning it. If, <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, they're made, they were made to be used, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if, even if it, if it broke in half tomorrow, I'd say we had a good run. <laughs> cool. I think it's a lovely attitude. I think, you know, it's very easy to for stuff like that that they're not going to make any more of just to put them in boxes and let them sit there and they're, they're tools, they're instruments, they need to breathe, they need to be played, they need totally. to, you know, they're, they're, they only sound good for as long as you keep playing them. Yeah, no doubt. 
Cool. Do you, do you find um, one, I, one thing I was thinking about earlier on? Talking about you playing multiple instruments, and like for me, I come from a background where I didn't grow up with bluegrass. It's something I've come to later in life, and okay. so I'm learning. These, I'm learning to play these tunes. They're not things that have been with me forever. Um, do you find learning a tune on different instruments is different? And you have a like, is there a different version of Soldier's Joy you play on mandolin than the version you play on guitar? Does the <laughs> instrument dictate the style of it a bit? I guess a little bit. To be honest, I, I don't put in any time playing anything other than guitar. Um, like, like as far as sitting down and practicing or working up a tune. I like, like for example, I have a gig on banjo tomorrow night. Um, just a pickup gig with the band up in Ohio, and so I'll, you know, I'll play a little banjo today, probably just to make sure I still know how to do it. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, just putting in time learning tunes or working up tunes. I'm not doing that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but, but. It's, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, definitely there'll be some kind of style things that'll be different between them, but I'm not, I haven't put a lot of time into exploring that lately, so I'm kind of, I don't know if I have a good perspective on that. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of, it's all, I think it's good to, because everybody basically listens to this podcast is learning to play a bluegrass instrument in some form. Are there any things you've learned from sort of learning yourself or from teaching or just being around the music that, you sort of tips you can give people on on the best way to go about playing bluegrass or learning tunes or just really good lessons you've picked up along the way? Yeah, well, I mean, tons. But the, the big thing that I'm always telling everyone is, like, listening is can be as important or sometimes more important than playing, I guess. Um, you know, so anytime you're in the shower or in the car or on your lunch break or whatever, you know, if you can be listening to this music and really kind of just getting a deeper connection and understanding with it and the way it works and the way it sounds and, and you know that's going to make you better so listening is a big thing and the second thing is use your metronome like i you know there's so many good players out there that when they get in the studio or something they'll fall apart because they're not used to using a metronome or they're not you know whatever like all the good players that i know really are practicing with a metronome pretty often so that's that's a big thing that i'm always kind of getting on my students about yeah, no, it's, I mean, I I played years ago with a bass player who was he could play great in his bedroom, but as soon as you stuck him in a room with other people, just couldn't just couldn't hold time. Sure. And it's you know it's a common thing, isn't it? And music's a conversation. You need to get out and speak with other people. I've been sitting here for the past year playing guitar in my room and recording a podcast and putting things out, but there's no substitute for sitting, particularly bluegrass, which is such a social music to get out and play with other people and listen to them and realize that you're going to be playing backup for ninety five percent of the time, and that's you know. It's a totally different thing, isn't it? It really is. So, and that's the other thing. Like, make sure you're playing with other people. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that I talk quite a bit about is like, if you're if you're learning new tunes, try to do it with your ears first. Um, you know, don't go straight to the tab or straight to the written music. Um, you know, your ears are going to be way more powerful than you think, probably. And then the other thing is, a lot of the tab and the things that are available online are not going to be. They might be accurate, but they, they might not be genuine. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm from West Virginia. I'm from Appalachia. Like, I, I grew up with people who I feel like really knew the music in an honest, genuine kind of way. And sometimes on the Internet, people, like, just random people have the freedom to put out educational things. You might not be getting something that is authentic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's one thing I've been really clear with the podcast is that, you know, this I'm not... Um, an authority or an authentic player or like I'm somebody learning to play an instrument like everybody else is 
and uh, and it's a big part of it, I think. And I think that's one of the things that fascinated me when I started learning bluegrass fiddle tunes is there is no... Like with a jazz standard, there's a definitive version of the tune, but there isn't with bluegrass. You know, you hear Tony Rice play Redhead Boy is not going to be the same as hearing Doc Watson play, and there's no one book that can take you back to the original source. So from somebody from my perspective coming at it, it's fascinating trying to work out which version of the tune to even start learning. And, and not only will the melody differ a little bit, but literally sometimes the whole form will be different. Like take a fiddle tune like Texas Gales. I don't know if you know that tune. Yeah, yeah. But you listen to like a tone, like on the Tony Rice and Norman Blake recording of it, it, it goes like A, A, um, B, B, C or something like that. It's a three-part tune. But when you listen to, I think, like a Doc Watson version of it or something else, it might be like, you'll hear some people who just play one A section, one B section, one C section. Yeah. Or, you know, so like the the actual length and form of these tunes can vary. So it, it can get a little overwhelming. Um, but that's what that's what makes it so exciting. It's, so, you know, it's such a deep music. You could spend your whole life with it and never run out of things to listen to. No, I mean, absolutely. You could spend your life with only like one album of it, not listen, you know, not <laughs> get things to do. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, what's next for you then? The the gigs with Becky? Are you thinking about doing another solo project? What have you got lined up? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different things, kind of half in the works and half not. Um, so, yeah, the gigs with Becky are, are the priority thing. That's like my you know my main gig. Um, but as far as like, I mean, so we're doing the Grand Ole Opry September third. That's a big thing that's coming up that I'm excited about. Um, I haven't got to do that yet, so that'll be my first time on there. And then uh, recording-wise, i got some different things in the works. I mean, we're kind of starting to have some conversation about what a second record would look like. Um, you know, talking to musicians and, and kind of figuring out what, you know, just what direction we're going to go with that. Um, and I, I think the direction that I want to go with is, you know, almost sort of stay in a similar vein as the first one and, and just get together with great musicians and have a conversation and, and play some cool tunes and, and just let it be what it is and, and you know, just kind of let it go. And I think kind yeah. of sometimes going the more clean, like commercial-ish route where like you hear what, like what you hear on Sirius and they play some of my stuff. I'm not saying they don't play good stuff, but a lot of the newer things coming out have this very polished, perfect, like everything's tracked out. Everything is auto-tuned. Everything is, the solos are comped, everything's fixed. And like I thought that our you know, the record that we made was unique because it sounded like there was improvisation going on and it was live and it was kind of raw and had that energy and, and I really liked that aspect of the music. So I wanted to stick with that and not you know not lose sight of that. Yeah, and that's what it's one of the things I like about it is, you know, if music is a conversation, a conversation is two people talking to each other to work out what they mean. It's not a bunch of fully formed thoughts they deliver to each other. And so being able to hear that process happening and you can hear it on your record, you can hear that, you know, that you're playing around with things and things are moving and I think that's what that's what's so vital about it. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And and, and outside of my own record, like my brother's about to start making a record that I'll be pretty involved in, so that'll take up a bit of my time, and then also I, I got some some like shorter duo projects in the works. Me and C.J. Lewandowski from the Po Ramblin' Boys are going to go in the studio here pretty soon and cut a few tunes. Oh, cool! Um, you know, I've had had some conversations with some other people about doing that. I don't want to give out too many names or whatever, but um, there's you know, I, I'm I'm going to try to put out more than anyone. 
<laughs> you know. Cool. Um, so where where should people where should people go to find out about it? Man, so my, my website's being like worked on a little bit right now, um, but um, I, I can send you a link if you want to include that. It, it's just jakeeddy.com, but it's like I said, it's it's down at the moment. But I'm uh, on Instagram. I'm the Jake Eddy, T H E J A K E E D D Y, and then on Facebook, my music page is just Jake Eddy, and then my personal one is the Jake B Eddy. So, um, cool. Well, we'll stick links to all of these in the show notes so people know where to go to find your stuff and and to find out about the new projects. Yeah, BeckyBuller.com. That's where all our tour dates are. Cool. We'll get all that. We'll get all that on the on the show notes so people know where to find you. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Jake. Thank you, man, for having me. I, I I really enjoy it. Cool. I really want to thank Jake for taking part in this. It's been really good fun, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed it too. I've got some more interviews lined up over the coming weeks, so more on that to follow. Some really cool people to talk to. Um, starting off with a couple of guitarists, but I'm going to mix it up, and hopefully over time we'll talk to a whole load of people, some players, some maybe some luthiers, maybe some teachers. Um, but I'll give you more on that as we build up the guest list as we go along so thanks again to jake check out the show notes for links to jake's various pages and platforms and becky buller dates um and yeah also want to thank jake's couple of companies that jake endorses uh, didario strings and blue chip picks uh but that's it for this episode and we will speak to you next time happy picking bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by collings guitars and mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.